Welcome to Women Empowerment, The Truth About the Glass Ceiling, a podcast from It Studio. We launched It Studio to provide an educational platform that's relevant, affordable, and accessible. It Studio is an online learning platform at the intersection of business and technology, integrating exciting virtual reality and augmented reality elements to deliver hands-on training. From our perspective, accessibility has two meanings. It's having access to higher learning from anywhere on any device, and it's making education accessible to anyone. We believe that education shouldn't be out of reach for so many people. And there are so many boundaries that exist. There's geographical constraints, financial constraints, and many places around the world, gender can play a role. Our belief is that education is the golden door to opportunity and upward mobility, and everyone deserves that opportunity. So what we've done is we've started dialogues across industry and academia around education as an enabler to personal and professional upward mobility. Let's look at this topic of women's empowerment in the workplace and the link to education, skilling, and accessibility. To set the stage, I'm gonna share some stats with you. Women represent 45% of the S&P 500 workforce, where only 25% are in senior leadership roles, and only 4% are CEOs. And in 2020, only 7.4% of Fortune 500 companies were run by women. This was an all-time high. And of these 37 women, only three were women of color. The data speaks for, for itself. There's been a lot of studies around this topic, a lot of discussion. But our goal today is to go beyond the data into experiences. What does it feel like to be a woman in the workplace and face the glass ceiling? We're going to take a deeper dive into this conversation by talking about women and empowerment at work from the lens of recruiting, coaching, and entrepreneurship. And we have a fantastic panel today to chime in on this topic. We have Beth Yoder, founder and CEO at B3 Hire, who brings in the recruiting perspective. Olivier Courtois, head of OlivierCourtois.com, who has extensive experience in leadership development. Rebecca Wilson is co-founder and technical director at Source Elements and brings in a unique music industry perspective. Brooke Latham is the founder and CEO of digital marketing agency, Social Canvas. Dr. Julie Goldman is a Shark Tank winning founder of the original runner company. And I'm Dr. Yogini Joglikar. I'm the host of this podcast and head of operations at its studio. So what is this glass ceiling? You'd be surprised to know the phrase itself was coined already in 1978 during a panel discussion about women's aspirations by Marilyn Loden. And she observed that women seemed unable to climb the ladder beyond the lowest rung of middle management, hence the invisible glass ceiling, the barriers to advancement. And she said that this was cultural, not necessarily personal, and was doing a huge amount of damage to women's career aspirations. There's so many reasons why companies shy away from women in leadership. It might be gender stereotypes, inadequate ecosystems, lack of role models. But let's see what our panelists have to say about what they have experienced in terms of the glass ceiling. May I invite you to introduce yourself and tell us about your experience of the glass ceiling that you faced in your professional journey. Beth? Hi, everyone. I'm Beth Yoder, and I'm CEO and founder of P3 Hired, which is a recruiting and search firm. And I have spent all of my career related to recruiting and human resources over the years. Uh, in talent and recruiting, I have worked in Fortune 500 level corporate settings. And for the last nine years um, in my own recruiting firm, as I said, P3 Hired, and I spent my early career years with one large company, actually over 14 years or so, uh, to be exact. Uh, I led large teams. I progressively took on more responsibility, led national recruiting efforts. And over time, I really was, I felt that I was uh, a, considered a very high potential um, employee of that particular company. And I really valued uh, what they gave me as well. Um, over time, as I established my value, I also was um, starting, in, starting a family. 
And right now I'm a, I'm a mother of three daughter, three teenage daughters. Um, but back then when I was starting to grow my family, my career was also at a pretty significant inflection point. And it was becoming clear that to have it all, meaning promotions and increased opportunity, I was not going to be able to balance that with creating and growing a family. Um, so my experience with that incongruency um, really created the, the ceiling that I felt at the time. Um, and hence, you know, with considering all options, was able to create P3 Hired. And it was somewhat um, uh, very, um, very spontaneous in a way because I really felt that there wasn't any other options to really have the balance and autonomy that I needed. Um, so creating this opportunity, um, you know, has been great, but, and I was also part of, you know, that, that corporate setting that actually was very, very um, female heavy at, at the very senior level. So I knew that they understood the hard decision I had to make at that time. So I don't know if uh, Olivier would like to state his thoughts as well. I know he is raising daughters as well. That's true. Um, thank you, um, Beth. Yes, indeed, I've got two daughters. I should say two strong daughters. Uh, they're eight, 30 now and 24. And I must say that they've educated me in understanding or getting a better grasp of gender diversity. Um, especially the second one who is, uh, you know, in the mid middle of uh, or at the start of a career. Uh, so very interesting to have that perspective. But I've, um, my name is Olivier, as you said, I've, I've, I'm Brussels based in the Belgium. I've worked on the five continents and my main focus has been on leadership. I've uh, worked with many leaders, uh, senior leaders, high potentials. Uh, in their development. Um, I've done that uh, through many different ways, through uh, coaching, speaking, uh, facilitation of uh, top, to, top team groups, etc. But also, I've been a leader myself, and I've been led many years as well. So, and among my clients, I've had several, I've got lots of people from all categories, including gender categories, men and women. So through conversations I've had with some top level women or up and coming women, I've also developed a point of view on uh, what they're strong at and, and what may potential may um, what potential barriers may be in their in their development. Um, about glass ceiling, because you were mentioning that uh, term before. I, yes, indeed, I recognize there might be a glass ceiling. There is uh, unconscious bias going on, uh, but I've seen it operating in many different ways. Um, I've seen glass ceilings due to your mother tongue. Uh, I've seen glass ceilings due to your function because you're an engineer uh, or you're not an engineer in an engineering group. Um, I've seen glass ceilings because of your nationality. Um, so glass ceilings exists uh, in many different aspects. And of course, the gender uh, specific glass ceiling is, uh, is true as well. Um, so lots of uh, ideas to share with you, but you know, I want to give the floor to my, my next colleague. Rebecca, would you like to chime in and give your perspective? I know with the music industry, you have a very different kind of background. I, yes, of course, uh, I would definitely have uh, really I was just thinking of Olivia what you said about um, there being many of those glass uh, ceilings and it's something that I think um, we could certainly talk about more um, so being part of this conversation is, is is really valuable and important to me and um, thank you so much for the invitation to um, speak here and, and meet you all um, so I'm a self-taught software developer and composer my journey with technology, which is uh, the, the world that I inhabit most, um, is, as well as music, but I work in technology, um, is when I became fascinated with, um, with computers and, and computer music in the mid-90s uh, while I was at university. I considered myself then a, a, quite a late starter. I was in my, uh, I think, 20. I felt everyone else around me had already been doing computer programming for, for years, but I hadn't had the opportunity uh, growing up. Um, 
a lot of that I was because uh, I noticed in, in high school I was very interested in computers, but it was extremely uncool to hang out in the computer room where um, there were um, it was all full of, of, of young men and the last thing you want when you're a 50 year old girl and other 50 year old boys. So I certainly felt um, I lost an opportunity then to get started with computers early on. But so I made up for it later and uh, sort of self-teaching, self-taught. Um, when I was doing um, computer music, it was a very liberating experience that when it's just you and the computer, um, there, there really are no uh, gender barriers at that time. Um, and so it's something that I've certainly been able to, to, to I like to, to, to share that with um, um, other, other people. Um, one of the uh, interesting things about music um, in itself is um, how special it is, how the act of making music is, um, uh, music on, on technology is, is, uh, is it, to, to try and express how when sound comes from nothing, you know, sound comes from electronics, from electricity, it's physics, it's, it's physics made audible and over time you can layer and arrange it and make music as a composer, that's incredibly liberating because suddenly you're not needing to um, also have to manage um, your social um, uh, role as a composer, needing to um, make friends with other performers or have the money to be able to be a composer so that you can have the time to make work with orchestras. It's a very demanding um, and often also very male-dominated role because of the, the particular constraints. So music technology for me was um, really liberating in that sense that you can sort of do it um, on your own. And I think that's something that a lot of women um, can really respond to um, and to, to relate back certainly to what Beth was saying. Um, we found that it's really compatible with family life, you know, working as a computer programmer, as a computer technologist is very compatible with family life because you can work in those off hours, you know, in those times when um, really suits you best. Um, so that's been really uh, uh, um, fantastic. And um, of course, in terms of the glass ceiling, when you think about um, computer programmers, you know you've got the traditional idea of the of, of the, the the male the guy in front of the computer. So there was certainly a challenge there in getting hired when I was younger. Um, but I and I, I often question whether I just benefited from a certain kind of chutzpah that I have. You know, this sort of bursting need and, and desire that I have to work with technology and computers that I really um, pushed my own boundaries um, and. There were definitely times when I felt um, unwelcome in certain areas or whether, you know, uh, people felt um, didn't want to have um, me around. One thing about being um, a woman in the, in, the, in the music industry, you know, you're up late at nights, you're in um, dark recording studios, and there's an element of that sort of um, that I think can make people feel uncomfortable about wanting to have women around um, as well. But when we're thinking about music why this is so important to address why it's so important for us to actually think you know why should we have music in uh, a woman uh, in the music technology just a, a couple of um, stats there um, about you know the actual making of music for every 47 engineers that are male there's one woman so it's a really really big big gap there in the actual making of music um, and also in the uh, uh, the leadership is about 15% um, women on the, the executive level as well in the music industry. So there's really big, big gaps there. And um, so I question, I question to myself, what does that mean when what we're listening to, the, 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 the media we're listening to, you know, when you watch a movie, when you, when you listen to music and it's been finished and mastered and produced by a very, you know, an over-representation portion, a segment of the population. What does that mean creativity, Tilly? What does it mean creatively? What are we missing um, um, in, our, in, our, in our lives and in our experience of um, society of sharing music together? So that's something that I like to think about. Um, sorry, I'm feeling, <laughs> there's so much to say, so i sorry if I've overspoken. Well, I'm Brooke and a lot like Rebecca, um, my, my interests and career wound up being this combination of technology and the arts, um, which, you know, was not always so easy. Um, <laughs> I, I right now have my marketing agency, Social Canvas, um, but before that, I when I was deciding to go to school, 
I wanted to go to art school and um, my family, of course, was a bit resistant. They thought that I would never, you know, make enough living to survive and I should really have a more balanced education. Um, but I was pretty insistent that this was the path for me and uh, I wound up taking a, a my program was called visual and critical studies. So it was the combination of visual arts and critical thinking, such as art theory, art history, reading and writing. Um, and so it really prepared me for more than I could have imagined, uh, more than I think I would have received uh, studying, you know, something that I didn't have my heart in or studying something that would have prepared me for one traditional type of job um, and after I graduated I went and worked in a public art nonprofit an auction house and eventually I wound up working in the gallery world which is of course very male dominated very who's who um, but I put my head down and I got to work and everywhere I went I felt like I was either taken advantage of or underestimated I, I mean some of the stories you wouldn't believe, just those strange circumstances you might find yourself in. Uh, and at times I even felt like rather than the glass ceiling, I was I was pushed up onto the glass cliff. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but it's the term for when women are kind of brought into a position of power at a crisis moment, when the chance for failure is higher. Um, and there were a number of times when I was underqualified, undertrained, undersupported, and kind of thrust into these positions uh, and did my best to pull us through and never really received that recognition, only to be after the crisis passed and I had achieved that, you know, replaced with someone else who had the traditional qualifications. Um, and so after years of putting up with this, I realized that the industry was really messed up and I wouldn't have the opportunity to climb the ladder. So I just reached a point where I quit my job without any idea what I wanted to do. Um, I just knew I had to get out. So I went to Japan and I learned about this concept called Ikigai and um, it's this combination of what you can, what you're good at, what the world needs, what you love, and what you can make money doing. So I realized that I needed to find my own. And um, I, a little later, found this side gig working for a woman who had her own marketing agency. And she was always on video calls with her kids in the background running around. And she was managing it all from home, working remotely. And that to me just was like, wow, okay, I can, I can really see myself in that kind of situation. I, I want that kind of control over my life. So through her mentorship and uh, learning marketing skills like self-taught on the go, I was able to turn that side gig into being a solopreneur and eventually into running a successful agency where I feel I've really found that um, ikigai, my life's purpose. I, I wake up every day driven to go further and climb higher than I ever really imagined. This is Julie. Rebecca, I thought that, and Brooke, that was an amazing piece and I actually related to so much of what you said. Um, so my name is Julie Goldman and I am the former owner of the Original Runner Company, which was a wedding-based business um, and craft and art-based. And in that environment, I absolutely found myself amongst women all the time. And but my history was never the same, meaning that I started in uh, political science. I lived in DC and I worked on Capitol Hill and I worked for several um, congressional commissions and such where I was the only woman or I was one of two other cute little women that they had taking notes, but really the power positions and all of those jobs were men. And if you work on Capitol Hill and, or in politics or in DC, thankfully it's changing slowly, but in the 1990s, um, it was a male dominated world completely. And to see that and, and get educated in that environment where I did my undergrad and my master's degree and worked on the Hill for such a long time, 
Um, I've always considered myself to be a very empowered and strong woman, even a feminist. And I felt small in that environment. Um, I think that's part of what women's empowerment is about is not allowing people, people to make us feel small, but allowing us space to grow and be empowered in those roles. Um, I left politics for that reason. I saw the only way to get ahead in, in DC and in politics was a kind of an underhanded way. And it really wasn't what I wanted. I then moved into academia. And you would think that academia would be also a place of equal opportunity, but it's not. I can't begin to tell you the number of women that I know that are professors who did not receive tenure. Um, the percentage of tenured men is superior over tenured female at any academic institution almost, and it continues to be a problem. So you're going to see this glass ceiling popping up almost in every field that you can go to. When I eventually um, started my first company with my husband, we worked in the HR field, which is ironically a strong female dominated um, area. Um, but at the same time in HR, for example, in my husband's current company where he is the head of compensation and benefits, he tells me they're looking to have at least 50% of their senior officers be women in the next like three years. And it's almost impossible. It's almost a reverse affirmative action for women where we're hiring women because we need to get those numbers up, but we wanna make sure we're hiring women for the right reasons. Women don't wanna be hired as a token. Women wanna be hired for the quality and the experience they bring to the role. So this idea of where are we going with the glass ceiling and how do we shatter it without being tokens who, as I think you were just sort of noting on um, Brooke, that are being put in these positions without the acknowledgement that we deserve. We're being put in those positions as placeholders to move your cause forward, and then we'll be replaced eventually by a man. So it's kind of interesting where we are right now and where we're going to be five years from now. This giant push to push women into businesses and into jobs may flip-flop, I would say, in a few years. And I think that's something that we're all really going to watch. Um, for myself, I ended up eventually starting another company in the, um, the wedding and special event space, which is predominantly women. And so there was this sort of lull into my space where I thought that I was experiencing this equal opportunity. I had almost all women working for me, again, because I worked with artists and I worked in weddings and such. But when I left my cozy little studio and my environment and my staff, and I went and did interviews on CNBC, or I went on The Big Idea with Donnie Deutsch or even Shark Tank, the glass ceiling was banging me in the head. It was so prevalent. And I've had, you know, Donnie Deutsch put his elbow on my head and rest his arm on my head because, sorry, Donnie Deutsch, I'm saying this, but because he called me kid and treated me in a way he would never treat a man, a male entrepreneur, a guest on his show. Um, I could name a long line of men and famous men who have disrespected me in those roles because I was a woman. And I know you can't see me, but I'm a very petite woman. I'm four foot 11. I present small. <laughs> and so I think it presents an opportunity for men to treat me that way. And believe me, I never put up with it, but I am amazed at the times I've been called honey and sweetie. And when you degrade women with those terms, you're telling them automatically you don't consider them to be equal with you. So I think this idea about where we're examining right now, this idea of this glass ceiling isn't really even all about women, but it's the perspective of men that needs to change. I think we're all clamoring for more opportunity. I, as a, a mother of a teenage daughter who I'm raising to be strong and powerful as well, she's, I often get to see this through her eyes because I think as women of a certain generation, we're used to seeing this discrimination, but when you see it through a 16 year old's eyes, she can't even understand or make sense of why things are unequal. So I really think that's what we're talking about is how we're building a more equal environment for women, but also for our daughters and for the next generation. So I think that, you know, that's pretty much all I have on that. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for, you know, all of your perspectives and really powerful experiences. I, I feel like you're right, Julie, in terms of that unconscious bias, right, which, and it might be conscious, but um, sometimes it's also unconscious. We saw that most recently in Jeopardy and the whole hullabaloo around um, how bias played a role in terms of hiring and uh, diversity, right? And we see that played out over and over again. I have a slightly different take on the glass ceiling. And you know, it's really interesting to me that three of our panelists today 
and four, if you count Olivier's take on a different kind of glass ceiling, have started or carved out their own spaces, their own businesses, um, possibly as a result of, of this experience. From my perspective, I grew up in a, a fairly traditional Indian family, but I would say it's part of the great Indian middle class, very aspirational, very education focused, and where gender was not an issue. And so uh, I was lucky enough to be raised in an environment where I was fully supported through my education journey. And I would say I've also been lucky in my experience of academia, which um, has been always on the fringes of academia. So perhaps that's the reason, Julie, why it might be slightly different from yours, but in terms of having very supportive bosses and peers and mentors, male and female, who have helped me through this journey. So where does the glass ceiling lie for me? Ironically, I found that it was within myself. And um, again, I don't know if this is shared experience or not, but I found it, I found myself very conflicted whenever it was time to consider a promotion or take on really huge responsibilities, you know, move my family across continents and so on. I found myself conflicted between the personal and the professional. And you know, I really fought very hard against it. Uh, but I, I feel like uh, with talking to students, talking to my mentees and to some of the people I coach, I find that barrier within oneself or that imposter syndrome, if you want to use a technical term, yeah, I find that cropping up over and over again. And I'd love to know it during the discussion today, whether you face this or experience this in some way. But I feel like with all of our experiences, it's about pushing out of comfort zones, right? And so whenever, it sounds like whenever all our panelists have faced that glass ceiling, they've fought it, they have um, sort of striven against it or found ways around it, found holes or gaps that they could break through. And this experience has really been exacerbated with the pandemic, unfortunately, with this kind of watershed event that we've had with COVID, we now speak of BC before coronavirus and the experiences we've just captured were probably mostly taking place BC. But if you look at just the data from the past two years, there's a recent article in CLO magazine that's titled, where have all the women gone? Because they're disappearing from the workforce much faster than men are. So again, some statistics to think about, more than 5.4 million women's jobs have been eliminated from the American workforce just between one year, February 2020 to January 2021. Uh, 2.3 million women have left the US workforce compared to 1.8 million men. And it goes on and on, right? So the question is, you know, what, what do we do with this kind of departure of women from workplaces, the leaky pipeline where the, the leaks are getting bigger and bigger? What are you seeing in, in your industry, in the women that you're working with in your organizations or with you, Beth, in recruiting or nurturing women's talent with you, Olivier? Could you please share your perspectives and starting with Beth again? Absolutely. And What's fascinating to me across the board, just hearing more from Julie, Brooke, Rebecca, and Olivier is the commonalities that we've all shared. Um, we have a lot of shared experiences and there's a lot of history there, but from a hiring and recruiting perspective, what I would like to share is there are, there's, there's movement and they're starting, I'm starting to see some of the cracks in the ceiling. And this is simply because knowledge is power. I think every nine out of 10 clients that I support start the conversation with diversity, equity, inclusion, and making the statement that they realize the power of diversity. So this is a conversation that I did not have a couple of years ago. So I work across many different industries and uh, Julie, from having your experience on the Hill or Rebecca in the music industry, where it is very heavily male populated, um, certainly there are definitely are industries where it's, it's very male dominated, um, absolutely. And what those conversations mean for me as I help them identify talent, this is where the rubber hits the road. You find out pretty quickly how committed 
and accountable they will be to their purpose of diversity. Um, so some of the things that get in the way that I've noticed in, in the professional setting is, is pressure. Um, it's a timing issue, pressure to fill roles very quickly. Um, and you know, unconscious bias is something we've already heard today, um, but that definitely plays into the decision-making process along the way. Um, so in the seat that I'm in as a consultant, I do remind them um, of what they've set out to do. And sometimes that's, I would really like to make sure that this position is filled by a woman. Um, is setting expectations early on with the hiring teams and, and asking how creative they will be, you know, or do they have time to be patient, you know, to find the right person? Because again, certain industries just don't have the numbers of women available. So it creates, it creates a challenge there. But if the true commitment, um, I, I worked with a client recently who was in the technology field and absolutely was committed um, to filling their senior vice president role with a female and they were gonna wait no matter how long it took. So I really appreciated that. And I think that um, some of the deeper conversations that I have too are, okay, if we're really committed, then tell me what resources you have to perhaps mentor or train incoming talent. You know, if perhaps nine out of the 10 boxes are checked, but not the 10th box is not, What's the propensity and the appetite to train on that particular shortfall? Um, and that can only happen sometimes if you have funds um, available to you. So there is, you know, there's some challenges with the type of industry that we're talking about and also the size of the organization sometimes. But I do have to say the conversation to start is beginning most of the time with their acknowledgement of diversity and the, the power of diversity. It's very heartening. Are you seeing that too, Olivier? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the first thing is, I mean, purely from a, a practical and economic perspective, uh, we have a huge issue globally in talent shortage. That was top of the agenda uh, of the Davos uh, summit and, and you dedicated a, a webinar specifically to the upskilling as a way to deal with talent shortage, but diversity, and I, I like what you've been saying, um, Beth, but also inclusion uh, are two powerful levers to face that uh, talent shortage. Uh, and for me, I'm coming back to leadership because it's one of my passion, but I think the diversity can only be successful if you have good leaders at the top that can be inclusive. And inclusive is not a, you know, a kind of a wishy-washy, feel-good uh, type of skill. It is, for me, essential. It is a capacity to bring diverse categories together, including genders, but all sorts of diversities, and put them together to achieve more together, A, but B, make sure that every category feels good uh, in that group, not in spite of, but thanks to their difference. So they feel that their category or their subcategory is being valued, appreciated, and recognized. And for me, this, these are very powerful levers. I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but if you look at, I mean, it, it blows my mind, but if you look at the Taliban back in Afghanistan 20 years later, there's some progress, I don't wanna be ironical here, but now women can still go to university. They were banned from them 20 years ago, uh, but they have to draw a curtain between men and women. So for me, what a, a waste of, uh, collect, of opportunities to bring a collective intelligence, to bring uh, the best of women and men together or the best in, in, of any category together. And so for me, it's about diversity and inclusion. But I'd like also maybe to make, uh, I like to be a bit provocative here, um, but um, when we talk about glass ceiling, and I've heard several of your examples, uh, and I would agree with you, nobody should ever make you feel small. But I want to say that um, it's not just a, a women thing. Uh, the, the fact of being made small or feeling small in a group 
happens between different men, depending on uh, of where you come from, depending on your could be your nationality, your background. It could also be because of your physical power. Let's be honest, we're, we're unfortunately still a bit of animal sometimes. And you know what happens when an animal becomes aggressive? If the other animal, and let's take dog, for example, if the other animal in front of you is fearful, the dog feels that and become even more nasty and aggressive. And for me, it's all about managing when you are feeling small because maybe you're smaller physically or because you belong to a minority or because you're not part of the club uh standing your ground uh and not being afraid and fighting back are ways to be respected and so i i, I am fully appreciative of um women facing sometimes discriminations or aggressiveness but you know what, that happens also to men, and I don't want to make statistics here, but you know, being put in a job that is a, a time bomb, where they wait, you know, they, they, they hope you're going to fail so that they can prove it was you were the wrong choice. That happens as well between men. The only thing is that you, you, don't, you don't have the decoder that clear because they're just men like you. But I, I think this is true for all human beings in, in the workspace. Unfortunately, when you come to the top of the organization, the more aggressive attitudes are paying off as much as collaboration. It's good to be collaborative, but when you come to the top, it is not always a collaborative job. And being aggressive becomes, unfortunately, you may regret it, a must. And women and men are capable of being aggressive, but I think women should not think that you know, aggressiveness is typically male. I think that's maybe a paradigm to get rid of uh, if we want to um, to uh, to have um, you know to 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 have an evolution in uh, in that situation. You know, I I I fully agree with Olivier, and I think uh, the sense that I'm getting is that everyone here feels like yes, this is a bigger conversation. It's all related. Um, male, female, any minority who is experiencing uh, this feeling of smallness or a limitation that's set on how far they can take their aspirations. Um, and I, I think that that is impacting, um, you know, that statistic that Yogini shared about the women who are leaving the workforce, I think that that trend is not going to be just isolated to one group. I think that um, overall, we're seeing people leave the workforce. And, um, you know, I think that it's because people want more control over their life and they value the different things than have previously been accepted. And so I, I actually feel that a lot of um, a lot of those people are coming to work in jobs like we have at Social Canvas, like they're coming to be freelancers or to work part time remotely. And, um, you know, I think we're what I'm seeing as I'm hiring and managing people is that we're seeing a lot of top talent that we might not previously have been able to uh, to attract because their priorities have changed. I think the pandemic showed the world that there's a new way of working and, and they don't want to go back to uh, the way things were. They don't want to be trapped in a situation where they feel uncomfortable or um, that they're, you know, forced to be around people who, you know, might not treat them with the highest respect that they that they would prefer to be treated with. And so people are really taking matters into their own hands. And I feel that a lot of those people are finding different types of opportunities like that. And I know, Rebecca, with your uh, business that you're actively promoting more of a work-life balance or integration, um, right, as, as one way of getting beyond this exodus of women that's happening in the workplace. 
Yes, working really hard to um, bring in uh, women, you know, by being very vocal about the lack of diversity. I think there's two key um, things that we can do. And I just wanted to mention what Olivier and Brooke just said is so important, that this isn't, this isn't a woman thing we're talking about. It's truly about diversity, because we know that seeking diversity um, isn't just to make women's lives better, but everyone's lives better. It's truly inclusive um, and, and meaningful in that sense, you know, and, and Olivia, like you said, it's about pointing out bad behavior of all kinds towards all people. And, um, and Beth, as you mentioned, that you've really noticed um, recently, uh, you know, quite a change and a shift in the um, environment. I think um, we have a, some of that to thank, whether it was the Me Too movement or the Me Too movement came out of more awareness that's just sort of naturally happening as our society becomes more communicative thanks to the internet. I'm, I'm not a sociologist, so I couldn't presume to know why all these things are happening now. Um, but um, what we can do um, is is higher. So Beth, it's really great to hear you talking about that. And I believe that you have to think ahead in your hiring needs and start training. So for example, you know, I have lots of um, women or underrepresented persons in my team and we actively think like, who are we going to need in five years? You know, who are these leaders going to be and start training them now? So for example, I'm doing a MBA program at the moment to you know, just to learn to be a better CEO. And you know, it's, it's, the more I know about finance, the better I can be as a CEO. And my personal assistant, he does it with me, you know, because one day I hope he becomes my chief operating officer because you know, that's just the best thing is that he, he will come up through the company and uh, take over my job. And so we also have a um, woman who started, say, as a support technician um, and are now leading, um, you know, product uh, or, or in product roles or head of, heads of product or, um, you know, heads of departments because we've really committed to their training and given them um, those opportunities. Not everyone wants those opportunities, but everyone who does um, should be given, um, you know, the, the option to do that through, um, you know, scholarships, internships. Um, I'm really excited to see in so many areas now, keynote speakers are women or people of, of um, you know, underrepresented groups, um, you know, people with disabilities. Um, it's really great to see. And, you know, you could be cynical about it and be like, oh, it's just posturing, but it doesn't matter because I'm just so happy to see these people in public, you know, on the big screens, on the billboards, with their big names, on the heads of these big companies. Um, it just makes it start to feel normal for me that I'm not a woman CEO anymore. I'm just a CEO. Yeah, great way to put it. Julie, does that resonate with your experience? Not a woman CEO, just a CEO. A hundred percent. It's funny that you just said that. I'm always frustrated when they're like, I'm so female CEO, so-and-so. And yeah, I think hopefully soon enough, we won't be noting that someone is a female CEO or a black CEO or whatever they, you know, wherever they come from. Um, I was thinking about with relation to, you know, the, sorry, in relation to the, you know, women's empowerment in the workforce, it really goes back partly to, uh, gen, you know, basically gender bias. So, you know, it previously up until we're leading up until 2020 and 2021, we've seen such an incredible gender bias in technology that tech wasn't for women. They weren't doing STEM. They weren't doing tech. They weren't doing math. That you know, stereotype is actually what holds back women significantly, I believe, in this gender gap, but it also is what's dividing and widening the skills gap. So, you know, if we sort of route this back to the skills gap and we look at something like cybersecurity, um, I recently read there was a study done where they, you know, interviewed all of these women who work in cybersecurity and said, you know, what is wrong? Why aren't there enough women in cybersecurity? And of the 200 women that they had surveyed in the United States and in the UK, they found that gender stereotypes was the number one reason that women didn't think that other women worked in cybersecurity. And as much as some people want to be a trailblazer, not every woman, woman wants to go work in an environment where they're the only woman. And that's a huge problem is the perception that you won't be welcome, that it's a man's you know, field, that it won't even have a female bathroom for you or a co-ed bathroom, legitimately a concern of someone I know who just worked at a job and they had to create a bathroom for her because they only had one male bathroom. And those little minor sort of um, injustices, I would guess, or whatever word you want to use, is what tells women they're not welcome there. So as soon as we create more environments 
that are more welcoming. I think that will, you know, help as well. But when they went back again to the study of these um, cybersecurity women, they said the problem they really found is that in their growing up, in their education, and even in their education in tech fields, they were never told that cybersecurity was an option for them. And so I think partly it's these fields opening up their doors and welcoming women more, but it's also understanding where are those skills gaps for women. So, you know, in 2017 and forward, the larger percentage of men were still using the internet to women by like a 20% ratio. And so, you know, if we're still having women afraid of technology, I can't begin to tell you how many people I tell that I'm going to be, you know, teaching a course on entrepreneurship for its studio through virtual reality. And women get immediately intimidated by, oh my God, I don't know anything about that. You know, that's where we learn. That's where we bring each other up. And I love what someone just said about, you know, bringing someone up within their team. I always did the same. I always provided extended education opportunities to promote from within. And I think that as long as we are able to look at everyone in our our company from the lowest, you know, administrative assistant to someone, you know, who is in a higher role and understand that every one of them has the opportunity to learn and grow from within and that we don't have to bring someone in previously experienced um, from the outside who in the past has been a man um, would probably change that dynamic quite a bit. Um, you know, if you look at something like in Studia, you know, offering courses in cybersecurity is such a great skills gap filler. It's allowing people who might work in minor tech and women to say, oh, wow, this is a field where they are dying for people, but they're also dying for women. And, you know, this I jumped at the opportunity to teach it in studio for that reason, because I believe that the next frontier for women is going to be grabbing that education for yourself, going for that MBA to further your own career. I've done the same. I've, I have four degrees now and I did them for me. I didn't do them for my resume. I did them because I wanted to consistently keep learning and challenging myself. And I think if that message could be spread further and wider that you're not educating yourself to jump through a hoop to get a job, but to better skill yourself, to upskill yourself um, so that you can then be a better solution for anyone who's looking to hire. You know, what I'm hearing throughout your commentaries is, uh, I like to comment, Julie, and completely agree about women intimidated by the unknown, right? And it's various kinds of unknowns that each of you has spoken to. But I also like how we are thinking forward. If you looked at any sort of handbook of how to build DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, everything you have just said, all of you would be in it, whether it's building courage, whether it's creating opportunities for diversity and dialogue and training, right? And what I wanted to do was also to go back to the story which I started with and to tell you the resolution of that, right? So having faced this internal glass ceiling what did I do to, to break it? I really pushed myself out of that comfort zone of academia and embraced a new role in business development. Had never done anything like that. But that really exposed me to so many conversations in terms of, uh, I was doing at that time business to business talent solutions. And I was forced to get in front of high powered stakeholders, male and female across industry, academia, government organizations. And by learning to embrace that and you know, leaning in, this was pre-lean in times, but Sheryl Sandberg's book, when it came out, completely made sense to me. And I especially like her analogy of um, career growth being a jungle gym, not a straight up ladder. And I truly try, have tried to do that, you know, whether it's moving continents or, or jobs or environments, being that hungry learner. I think that's what I've tried also to pass on in terms of uh, solutioning a little bit for women. I'm really bothered by women leaving the workforce in great numbers. That's always been the case. And what I've tried to do is become part of uh, mentoring organizations, not just for women, but uh, over the time in doing my research in MBA programs, I've realized that it is specifically a, a women's question. And so I've tried to get involved with a lot of women's mentoring organizations. And if I can, every year, my goal is to, to mentor and help even one woman not leave the workforce and find alter, alternative employment. And I hear a lot of that in terms of the opportunities that we are creating. I think it's fantastic that we're not just getting stuck with analyzing the glass ceiling and how it exists, but really getting into the solutioning mode. 
So that's going to take me to my next question, our final one, where I would like a quick and punchy answer. I'd like to know from each of you, what is one thing you want women to do and one thing you want organizations or the ecosystem to do to help us shatter this glass ceiling? I'll weigh in there. This is Beth. Um, one of the things I think women can do is ask. Just ask for it. And you're your own best advocate and no one else will do it as best as you can. So ask for what you want and you can get used to that by doing it in, in small doses. Ask for things that are easy to ask for and work your way into the big ones because it takes practice. Um, that's That would be my, my quick and um, quick point of advice for for women um, today and from the from the company or hiring teams or whatever you want to call them is be open to looking at candidates that have potential. So let people that apply for jobs expect to see candidates that haven't mastered that skill already. Like that is such a boring way to, to grow your career. Just like what you said, um, Yogini, about Sheryl Sandberg, it's a jungle gym. So you can cross over, but then you can leap, you know, two steps ahead if you sometimes. So be for employers, be open to looking at the potential that someone brings to the table and seeing where they can go even two steps ahead of, of where they're, they're going to enter your organization. Yeah. Um, yeah, great reflections. I mean, it's, it's so frustrating. You like to say much more. There's so many things to share. Uh, but I would say uh, my first, that sounds strange that I, I, I give tips to women as a man in this debate, but I would say as a leadership expert, I would say that uh, if we want the situation of women to evolve uh, uh, in the workspace, uh, we have to basically make sure that we have those conversations and women have to play a, a, a leading role in this, but men must be there as well. Um, at individual level, working on yourself, on your belief system, on your self-confidence, on your skills, because I think skills uh, are a winner. But it's also a debate that you need to have within your couple. I mean, we've seen with the COVID situations that in many cases, let's be honest, women have sacrificed their time more than men to take care of the kids, to take care of the additional chores. Uh, and it's been more often women than men who did that. And of course, that comes in conflict with your time management. If you want to spend more time going outside, meeting other people, uh, have the energy to focus on your job, uh, you know, you're at a disadvantage. So the, the negotiation at the couple level is also extremely important. And then, of course, education of kids is very important. How do you educate your boys to be both very boys, very males, and extremely uh, inclusive and respectful and finally um, it's in the political sphere because um, things like parental leave paid parental leave for fathers uh, and we have that uh, in Europe um, in many countries uh, has changed mentalities or has helped change mentalities so I think women need to, to work at these different levels with men but I also think that specifically for women I would I would say, maybe not to always see it through the gender lens. Uh, I've heard women say, you know, you don't realize when I speak, they cut me off. Uh, I said, yes, me too. Uh, you know, when I raise my voice, they become aggressive towards me. I said, yes, me too. So I think it's um, sometimes using the gender lens uh, doesn't help. Uh, and, and maybe we need to change the vocabulary because we speak sometimes. I've heard women say, you know, I had to dis develop my masculine traits to make it to the top. You would never hear a man say I've developed my feminine traits when they deal with what is supposed to be more feminine, like um, um, collaboration, empathy. So I think instead what I would, you know, I think Stanford proposed to use communal versus agentic uh, traits. Nobody understands those words, so I don't think these are the right words, but at least using characteristics like more aggressive uh, traits or more collaborative traits rather than use the word masculine feminine, I think that would also help. And then maybe if I can make a, a short uh, final comment 
uh, for men, what I would suggest as well, because that's the journey I went through as I grew older, uh, is that, um, you know, when you deal with differences, cultural differences, there is a, a, a continuum that has been highlighted that when you deal with the cultural differences, you uh, first, you're, you, you're not aware that there's a difference. You think everybody is the same. Then when you start to realize there's a difference, you start to polarize the other side by thinking you're better. And then gradually, as you work on yourself, you start to come to what they call the minimization level, where you tend to recognize our differences, but you minimize them and you say we're all the same after all, which is midway towards uh, really embracing diversity. And then you start to accept the differences and then you say, yeah, that's true. Maybe we're men and men are slightly different. Uh, but the true inclusion is when you start to uh, go to adaptation mode, the fifth level, where you start to think, yes, we're different and we need to think on ways to embrace the diversity and make a space where we're working together, but where every diverse group is being taken care of, or at least is being taken into consideration when we set up the system, when we set up the process, uh, the processes, for example, promotion processes and everything. And I, I would, you know, advise every man, but every human being to go through the journey when it comes to the other category, the other side, uh, to really come to an adaptation level and, and become intentional in trying to bridge the gap um, or narrow the gap, at least, between different categories and different diversities. Thanks, Olivier. Um, I think it's interesting what you said about language, because as you know and, and, and point out, there's, it's really a spectrum where, you know, us and we, men and women and, uh, you know, our, our ethnicity, we're not distinct from each other. Um, and so we should be aware that the language you use is damaging. And, um, for example, why don't men embrace feminine traits? Um, it's because these feminine traits are traditionally seen as pejoratively in business. You know, it's okay to be aggressive. That's how business gets made. It's how resources are gained. And being communicative, do they ever win a war? Well, I think we'd actually find out it won more wars than, uh, than we think. Um, but we don't, uh, you know, we don't talk about those because there's no exoticism in, um, you know, sitting down at the table and being communicative. Um, but a couple of things I wanted to just finish with, um, we're talking about, you know, how to move forward and uh, how to, you know, how can we be in our lives. And one thing that I've always wanted to remind myself is to be brave because being, you know, having courage and being brave is really a part of that. You think as you get older, like, you know, I'm in my 40s now and it's like, I know, am I not, am I not grown up yet? I'm still growing up every day. And it's like, be brave, Rebecca. And um, I remember back the very first, my very first corporate job when I walked into a, a big corporation, you know, an office with lots of people and, and uh, you know, cubicles and this sort of typical stuff, you know, when I was just coming out as a programmer and thought, well, I'll go and get a real proper office job and let's see what that's like. I walk in there as a programmer and, and this is like year 2000 and they take me into the programming room and there's no windows and it's a bunch of guys sitting around in front of screens and on the walls, I'm not kidding, a naked woman on the walls and they're interviewing me. And I'm just standing there like, what? world where am i you know like how 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 am i supposed to do this so i said you know what um give me a computer and i'm going to go and sit over by the windows with the graphic designers so i could have just not taken the job but i wanted it so i you know i was really proud of myself that at that moment to be like i'm going to be here but i'm going to do it on my terms and uh, that worked out really well for me. Um, and, I, and I stayed there and, uh, you know, made, a, made an impact and made an impact on me. And I learned a lot. Um, uh, so one other thing that um, I felt was really important, and if I could go back in time now, I was too young then, but now I'm, I'm, I'm more mature and I know how, I would have made that problem visible. I would have said to them, guys, you know, you, this means that you're not hiring women, you're not hiring men who are also uncomfortable around naked women pictures, you know. Um, let's how about you consider changing your environment to be more open and inclusive and you know then to hang out with the rest of the company so to make the problem visible to point out to those problems to those people in power um, I think that's something that we also need to be doing and uh, that does take uh, I guess some kind of um, 
some, some experience in your industry first before you're able to have the courage to do that. But uh, let's hope that uh, many of us get the chance to do that. I absolutely love that story. This is Julie, because I have actually been in that situation three times where I went in and there were naked women hanging on the walls. Oh, and stuff. No. <laughs> oh yeah. Incredible. And I, I was always astounded by it. And so, yeah. And yeah, there's so many other stories anyway. So I, I was thinking about my conclusion as far as moving forward. And I think there's two, two bits I would say. One is I would love to quote Ruth Bader Ginsburg here and say that every decision that is being made should have a woman in the room. Um, and I believe that. I believe that companies that are making decisions for women or even for their own female employees, never mind their you know, clients or customers that are women, should have a woman's voice. Um, I think we've often seen things come out into the world and we're like, no woman would have approved this. This is crazy. And I think that's partly where, where business is failing is that they don't think that there is a woman's perspective. And I know we're all supposed to be equal, but we're not the same. And treating women with, you know, that respect is an important piece of this. So I think that number one is, you know, having women in the room. Number two is hiring on talent, not on gender. Um, I think that there are equally number of talented women out there. I don't think the answer to the glass ceiling is hiring women that are not talented just to fill the numbers. But more importantly, I think for women to overcome this is to overcome the skills gap. I think it is the number one issue that we are having right now in this country. I believe I've read so much on this. So I'm going to tell you that I've read the statistic to be anywhere between 20 to 50% of people that are currently in their roles need to be upskilled. That's a massive number. That means there's an entire workforce of people who are underskilled, who will not be able to move up. And a lot of them are women. So I do think that if employers can understand the idea of upskilling within, providing more opportunities for access outside, not just getting degrees. I've, I've worked for many companies who would pay for your college, but they weren't necessarily even dictating what types of courses they wanted. And so people were taking very, um, you know, liberal arts degrees, which weren't moving them up or giving them more skills within their job. Um, so, you know, using more online specifically based targeted skills programs. Um, there are so many wonderful things available for free or for payment. There's immersive experiences like in Studia, where you can really feel at the, you know, what you're doing in cybersecurity or video production. But I also, you know, not touting that, but simply saying, I do believe that's the answer. I believe that even for myself, I'm upping my skills every single day. I am learning apps and online technology and VR in a way that I have never used before. And I'm in my 50s and I'm a woman who has tried many roles and many jobs. I've transitioned and career transitioned and retaught myself. And I think that is the number one thing for anyone who's listening, whether you're a man or a woman, if you would like to do a different job, go get the skills for that job and then you will be qualified to do it. And I really believe that is the number one where we're moving as every job becomes a tech job. That is the critical piece for me at least. So to me, I think um, to women looking for empowerment, I'd say the same thing I'd say to anyone who feels stuck um, and that's don't be afraid to say no to what's not working. Um, learning to challenge a situation or to walk away from something that's not working was honestly the best lesson for me, not just in my career, but in my whole life. And we don't have to cling to things out of desperation. We can really create our own reality by learning a new skill, asking for help, listen to a podcast, just making any change in your life, even if it's just a small one, reminds you of that power that you have, that control you have over your life. And there are more definitions of what success looks like now than ever, and more unconventional paths to get there. So you really don't have to wait for someone to wake up and offer you that promotion you've been working so hard for. You don't have to go into a space every day where you feel uncomfortable. You can create opportunity for yourself. So don't be afraid to say no to what's not working and be vigilant in your search for what does. Excellent. We have heard a range of responses along with experiences, which is what we had promised you at the beginning of this podcast. But we have heard a range of responses and solutions in terms of what we need to do to empower women to break the glass ceiling. Uh, we heard that women need to arm themselves with hard and soft skills. They need to 
develop a mindset of problem solving, you know, develop the confidence, take ownership. And from then at Studia perspective, here's what we are doing. We are, for women, we are offering an, a special fund called Omi's Fund that is going to assist students in need in general, but especially meant for women who have been hit hardest by the pandemic. And from the organizational perspective, we're working very hard to build a virtual reality-based module on diversity, equity, inclusion, not just looking at gender diversity, but diversity across the board. Just imagine being in virtual reality and being immersed in situations of either inclusion or exclusion. All the stories we have heard today in terms of facing posters of naked women or being, meant, being um, made to feel small, imagine living through that and what a powerful training tool that can be. So we really believe it at Studia that this is going to be a game changer when it comes to DEI training. And we can't wait to work with our audience and uh, work with you to develop some forward-looking solutions on this topic. If you're intrigued and want to know more about It's Studia, join us on social media. Our tag is at It's Studia. Let's continue the conversation. Learn more about diversity, equity, inclusion, skilling, upskilling with panels that are coming up on It's Studia podcast. Thank you very much to all our participants today for your refreshing perspectives, for your honesty in terms of the journey that you've had and for your forward-looking solutions. Thank you.